Hi everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it Lessons from Our Living Rooms or Couch Conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when and what do I do when, so that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. All right, everyone. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. We are glad you are here. And I am thrilled to be sitting here today with Rhodes Perry, who I can't wait to have. I'm sure we could talk for hours uh, to have conversations. We've just connected um, recently, but have shared passions around um, supporting LGBTQ plus and expansive and exploring kids and their families. Um, so yeah, tell me, tell me a little bit about what, what brings you to the chair today? How did you find yourself in this, in this seat talking about these things? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on the show and it's great to connect with so many of your listeners. Um, you know, I'm a lifelong LGBTQ plus advocate. Um, I've been doing this work since I came out when I was 18, um, at the university of Notre Dame, um, on a pathway of trying to be a little more affirming of, uh, our LGBTQ plus alums and, and students right now. Um, and, uh, and I, this is just, it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I've worked for a number of LGBTQ plus advocacy organizations professionally, PFLAG National. So definitely connecting with so many parents 
I hope many of which are, are PFLAG members, such a great organization for largely allies mm-hmm. showing up for their LGBTQ plus kids and people that they love, friends. Um, and uh, and I also uh, worked previously um, in a very early in my career at the Ally Forney Center, which is a homeless LGBTQ plus organization, largely working with um, homeless trans and non-binary young people. And this was like in the early aughts, right? So a really different time in terms of visibility for trans and non-binary people. Um, so it was an interesting time, you know, as a, as a trans guy myself, you know, I, I'm a white transgender person. So people listening, you, you may not see me, um, but the experience of working with young people who are largely BIPOC and navigating poverty, um, being trans and non-binary was uh, experiences that were kind of night and day for me. Uh, so for me, you know, definitely white white privilege, you know, provides some level of protection, um, definitely from from violence, I would say. Um, and still, the treatment at that time was not great. Um, and and um, and working with largely black and Latinx trans women um, and young girls, you know, trying to find housing and education and employment, you know, those kind of like. I wouldn't even say microaggressions, like outright macroaggressions that people thought were totally fine and appropriate and still today, just was a big motivator for me, you know, in the work that I do. So I, I could probably talk about any of those experiences, but that's that's what brings me to today's conversation. <laughs> and I appreciate that. And when we were we were sort of chatting, there there are so many directions to go. And I think both of us are feeling drawn to talk a little bit about the the current current climate and the mm-hmm. the cost to to all of us um mm-hmm. and especially to kids navigating these journeys and their parents when we politicize identity and when we misunderstand and oversimplify and sensationalize um identity it's a it's a you know I, I spend a lot of time with a lot of parents trying to wrap their minds around um, what support looks like and what their kids need, managing their fears and trying to figure out how to protect um, their children who are navigating LGBTQ plus journeys. And, and, it, and I say it's a, it's, an, it's a really interesting time because while there is a growing, feels to me, and I'd be curious about your input, while there's a growing community of allies, there are people committed to learning about this stuff. There are people committing to rethinking what they were taught, to understand the broader experience of gender and sexual orientation, to really listen and center the voices of folks with lived experience, figure out how to step into it. There is a growing um, energy and education and information around that there also is a pretty strong undercurrent actively taking steps to to prevent safety and exploration and access and so there there is hope uh, for community and for understanding but there is also this this um strong pull towards um undermining safety and progress around this. Is that what you're seeing in your work as well? How would you describe the the current climate and what's happening politically around identity? Yeah, kids? yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a uh, progress, you know, like the, the, the saying, you know, a few steps forward and, you know, a few steps back. And, um, 
and that's definitely, you know, since I've been doing this work for about 20 years, there, there's different forms of it. Um, I would say around 2004, if folks remember, um, there was a lot of politici politicization of uh, same-sex couples who were getting married, right? And you would see legislation, statewide legislation attempts to redefine a state constitution's definition of marriage between being with one man and one woman, right? That was 2004. Um, there was a lot of focus on um, largely lesbian and gay couples uh, who who just wanted to get married, and uh, and that was largely done by opposition groups to try to get people aligned with their political beliefs to show up at the polls, right? And they didn't really care the costs and the impacts that it had on day-to-day -day LGBTQ plus folks. And I think we're at this place again um, in 2022, however, with greater visibility for trans and non-binary people broadly, you know, no matter your age. Um, you know, it's challenging, as you said, for some people who we're raised by thinking that gender is, um, it's determined by biology, right? Biology determines everything. And we know that, you know, if I asked you to define like, the qualities of what it means to be, you know, a woman or a feminine person, you know, like these these are things that um, are more about social, social conditioning and, um, and what we, you know, culture, you know, values, beliefs, and behaviors that we pass along from one generation to the next. Um, I have a gender studies background, so I can go off on all of these things, but I won't, I won't hear. I just want to say that the scary thing of this moment is that targeting is happening for trans and non-binary people, and the targeting that's happening is targeting children and young people, adolescents. And that, to me, feels like uh, just you don't cross that line. You don't cross a line when you look at childhood and adolescent development that's healthy and normal. When we think about when gender, when our ideas, like our internal ideas of gender are solidified, that's between the ages of two and three. Um, and for some of us, you know, we have feelings in our heart that we, we may not have words to express definitely at that age, that, you know, our gender might be different than kind of in the direction that our parents or caretakers are kind of guiding us, right? And as you said, there's protective factors that parents have of like, no, 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 this is what you do and this is where you play and these are the clothes that you wear. And it's all done with like good intentions, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what we know from, from childhood development is that, you know, for parents that are affirming of their kids as they're, as they're moving into their ident identities of, of gender, having that space really allows for positive health and well-being decades out, right? So we want to affirm our kids and we want to have connections and spaces where we can do it, where we're not going to be socially policed as parents. So that's real. And similar with sexual orientation, um, I've, I've done a lot of work in child welfare settings uh, to support LGBTQ young people, you know, and, and, you know, we often have materials that are age appropriate and some of the pushback that I remember getting from lawyers in particular is, oh, no, we can't talk about, you know, um, age appropriate, you know, sexual orientation development um, because young people, they don't know anything about who they are until they're like 18. And it's like <laughs> the reality is like for, uh, you know, if you think if you go back and think about your first crush, like developmentally, that can happen as early as age five. Right. And so your first crush can be on, you know, 
could be on people of different genders, right? Um, so, so that's this kind of like refreshing, you know, going back through childhood and adolescent development, I would say definitely do that with the lens of recognizing, like we said before this interview, we all have a sexual orientation, we all have a gender identity, and we all express our gender in wildly different ways. And that's a part of childhood and adolescent development that often isn't taught, right? And so that's where misinformation comes from. And I think going back to your question about politicizing trans and non-binary people in particular right now, because there's so much misinformation, states like Texas, you know, the governor can, can issue a directive to child welfare agencies that, that redefines child abuse as targeting affirming parents who want to support their trans and non-binary kids to get connected to social resources, community support, and sometimes gender appropriate care, gender affirming care that really helps them thrive and survive. And all of the research points to when parents are affirming of their, their kids, that's going to increase not just their health, their well-being, their, their fullest potential to thrive. And unfortunately, you know, with these kind of directors and hundreds of bills in states all across the country right now that are denying trans and non-binary kids the opportunity to get connected to healthcare, to get connected to sports, right? To play and to socialize and learn leadership skills. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty chilling environment um, and it's having a real cost on young people. And so I'm happy to talk about that. And I, I want to kind of Give it back to no, you, Dr. No, no, I mean, to... I think that's a really, I mean, immediately, I feel it immediately in my practice with kids and families because this is an issue that people outside of family systems have decided they have a right to have a say in. And they judge, judge parents. Parents feel judged. Parents are judged. This, the, as I've said, you know, the gender stuff is the water we swim in before kids are born. We lay out expectations early on. We cue kids very clearly what they're supposed to be or not supposed to be doing, what's expected of them in their um, gender. And it is parents feel the pressure. They are aware that there is a larger debate about whether or not this is real, quote unquote, like, is this a thing that should be supported? Um, or are we harming our children by supporting them? And so knowing that you're making decisions for these beings that you love more than anybody in the world in a tide of places where systems around you can tell you it's harmful, where, you know, it's, it's so parents, families are immediately impacted when the larger conversation becomes not only is this, you know, probably something you shouldn't do, but it's actively harming if you are in the absence of conversations about what the research shows, what we know about what kids need. And so it shows up immediately in my office with stress um, for parents and kids, parents second guessing things, kids worried that they're going to go backwards in understanding parents fears about where kids should go to college or can't go to college or I mean, like all kinds of really practical things, let alone much more active harm, as you mentioned, layered through privilege, if you're already navigating racism and classism and other things, 
your physical safety is in danger if there are more conversations about whether or not this is real and right in terms of and to I imagine I try to imagine often I'm cis and hetero and have more experienced parenting around some of this stuff is is like to imagine that other people are debating whether you are real and right mm-hmm. how does that impact young people growing up yeah I mean right now you know, with hundreds of bills across the country, you know, 85, this, this is research that comes from the Trevor Project, an LGBTQ national organization. Um, 85% of trans and non-binary youth right now um, have said that the recent debates about their lived experience, their, their realness, right, has negatively impacted their mental health, right? And so I think when we think about this and also just kind of the debates are leaving them feeling very scared about the future. Um, I think we have to uplift the the, inf- the the tons of information that's out there around what every major medical and mental health organization is saying about trans and non-binary young people from the American Medical Association, which I would say is probably the most conservative out of all of these groups. And they are unequivocally supportive of not only kind of affirming the realness of trans and non-binary people broadly, um, but denouncing legislators that are getting in the way of the kind of care that trans and non-binary people need to thrive into healthy and happy adults. By denying this, by trying to legislate um, our existence, you know, at, uh, to be invisible, to be illegal, it's not going to stop trans and non-binary people from existing. And I think like that might be something that might, might help some of your listeners in just recognizing, and this is where I'm going to draw my gender studies background. Trans and non-binary people have existed since time immemorial, right? So if we look at indigenous traditions, two-spirit communities, there's there globally, you know, there have been different expressions and gender identities since time immemorial. And colonization over the past 500 years has limited our ability to say who we truly are because of binary notions of what a man is and what a woman is. So I think like just the self-study in that might kind of, you know, thousands and thousands of, of years of civilization might kind of reaffirm, right, like this is a blip in time of where we're at and younger people just are are kind of reclaiming um, and decolonizing this aspect of their identities. And I think like what's really promising to me, I know we're kind of talking about some of the challenges here, what's really promising, and I do a lot of work in organizations like the workforce, is when we look at Generation Z, 33% of Gen Zers, Zoomers, digital natives, whatever you will <laughs> want to call this generation, um, identify as something other than straight, 33%. So this kind of notion of one in 10, you know, that's that's out the window. Like we actually have more data, more young people, um, regardless of what's happening in the world right now, are, are owning, you know, their identities in a different way. And 25% of them, right, one fourth of this generation are expected to transition their gender at least once in their life. And on top of that, you know, of all this generation, 35% know someone who uses a pronoun 
that it's a gender neutral pronoun, like they and them, for example. So, you know, this is happening. I think what we're experiencing is people who hold positional power um, in certain political parties, you know, are using this moment of kind of culture change as a, as a point of fear and, you know, just using people's lives um, and creating that fear that you see in your office every day with families um, as a way to score political points just to get people to show up at the polls. So just like I shared with marriage equality, you know, 15 years ago, you know, that's not, a, you know, people aren't kind of rallying around that as a political issue um, because the Supreme Court has settled this, right? Um, has settled that two people who would like to get married regardless of their gender can't, and that's great, right? That doesn't impact my relationship with my partner probably doesn't impact the relationships of other people listening right now and their partners. And similarly, with affirming people and believing who they say they are, how does that hurt anyone else? Like, I, I just, I really struggle with that. Um, and I think it's it's truly like what I see in my own work is it's just lack of proximity to people. You know, really, like, it's an empathy gap. It's really easy to dehumanize another person or group of people that you have zero connection to you might have read things that are misinformed or miss that might contribute to some biases that you hold. But until you actually try to get to know someone who's different from yourself, um, you will continue to have these empathy gaps. And it's really painful to see um, because from my perspective, it's personal, right? It's hard to, and I've, you know, I'm in a field where I'm curious. I ask questions to try to understand kind of these root causes of fear um, and, uh, and it's just, it's hard right now because it's not impacting me as an adult. It's, it's impacting younger people. And I think of my younger self, what would my life be like had trans people been visible, you know, in the 1990s, you know, when I was uh, a teenager coming of age, you know, it would have been really cool to see people like Laverne Cox and Janet Mock and so many powerful trans leaders speaking their truth and being visible and at the same time, that visibility is a double-edged sword because of this kind of backlash that we're seeing. And so I'm just leaning into, you know, what are ways that cisgender, you know, um, straight people can use relative power and privilege to say no to this? You know, like you're listening to this podcast, like what's within, what's within your sphere of influence where you can share some of this actual information that comes from peer-reviewed research and people who have dedicated their entire careers to understanding this and you know and listening to professionals like you dr laura where it's like you're working with families every day you know and kind of you know just kind of curious like um when you when you are working with families i don't know i guess i'm turning the no, perfect. Back years, but, don't do yeah. it i'm ready <laughs> yeah but just kind of like how do you coach how do you coach families that are in the state of, of fear and you know wanting to lean on those protective factors of like well we're just going to delay transition a little bit or we're, we're going to put this off like how do you kind of coach them to understand the cost of doing that of, of kind of yeah. you know denying a young person the ability to really move into the reality of who they are. Yeah, I think it's a really because it's a it's a complex space to be in too. Because part of the conversation, as there's more visibility, part of the conversation becomes this idea that there's always a matter of simple yes or no's, and people race right toward Are you going to do hormones? Are you going to do like right with a kid as young as ten or 11, you know? People are younger. People start asking about that. 
and, and there's this polarity that gets set up with parents and young people um, around these issues. And, and I have to really help people work to see that there are implications for not making decisions as well as for making decisions that not consequences cue the dark piano music and, you know, scare, but there are implications, not deciding not to take steps is a decision and it has implications. Um, and I think also I spend a fair amount of time reassuring parents that, that the assessments have been thoughtful. The unfortunate part of the increased or an unfortunate part of the increased visibility seems to be this idea that folks who work in the field of gender are rubber stampers. That if mm -hmm. my kid comes home at 14 and announces all of a sudden they've got a new name and pronoun, that unless I say yes and tell the school tomorrow and sign them up for some surgery, I'm not being an affirming parent. Yeah. And I really spend time working with parents about there are some youth who are exploring in a way that won't lead to lifelong identity, you know, other than <laughs> cisness. Their expression may vary, but their identity won't. But those are not the majority of the kids. And the conversation has turned where because of the politicization, the idea is that the harm is actually coming from too much support rather than recognizing that assessments are careful, thorough, child-centered. I want to know how your child makes decisions. I want to know how your child is influenced or not. I want to know what your family's approach to gender is. I want to understand your child in an entirety and then help make decisions, understanding that no decision is a decision. <laughs> And that it has implications. Sometimes we think if you do nothing, then that's safer. It's waiting. It will protect the child because what if they change their mind or what if they, and, and I get it as a parent, like, and this is what I was saying too, right? We've got kids sitting at the table saying, um, uh, you can't possibly understand my lived experience. I'm in my body. I'm in the world. You haven't had this experience. And they're absolutely right. And then you have parents saying, I don't, you can't ex understand the pressure and the responsibility I feel for guiding you toward opportunity and not closing doors and not, not creating a life for you that will be, that will be harder comes up a lot, right? Cause they're, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when you are navigating a protected identity, when you're on a gender journey or you're navigating a sexual orientation that is not mainstream, there are elements that are harder, right? So it's how do we say, Yes, there are these things that are harder. And if you're educated and informed and connected with your child and you're tuned into professionals who are responsible and thoughtful and informed and affirming, then you can do this. But it, but it's, it's unfortunately, there's been a lot of energy put toward the harm comes from a quick stamp of allowing um, this phase or this trend to change the course of children's lives irresponsibly and that plays into the that's that gets directly tapped into around the limitations being legislated in places to to like stop parents from being able to decide what's right for their kids yeah yeah i thank you for sharing all that just like brought me back to to doing some work with with families probably different families than the ones that you're working with. Um, uh, when I was working um, 
for, for the child welfare system in New York City, right? And so a lot of the behaviors that we saw of parents or caretakers was, you know, the manifestations of those protective parenting factors, right? Mm -hmm. And so there would be a lot of bargaining that would happen with a young person who was trans or non-binary of like, look, you know, we respect you, we, we affirm you, and you can only dress this way inside of our house. If you go out into the neighborhood, you're going to get beat up. And we don't want you to do that. And so, you know, it's it's coming again, it's like that good intent and the impact for that young person is, you know, when you look at Caitlin Ryan's research from the Family Acceptance mm -hmm. Project, right? Like there's different levels of rejecting behaviors, right? And you wouldn't think that protective factors like that would be viewed as a rejecting behavior. However, it, it, the way it lands for a young person is it is, right? And so um, that's where kind of, any kind of rejection increases these instances of suicide ideation. You know, it, it goes to the places where none of us want to even think about our kids being in these places. And yet that's what the research shows, right? And so the idea of too much affirmation just kind of like, just gave me like a chill of like, ah, yeah. you know, um, and then, and then I think it like leads to what you know, right? And I think it's like worth just kind of saying on the, on your show, like, these levels of transition, right? Like I think like where people immediately go is like surgery and hormones, right? Yeah, and yeah. it's just like, that's not where you go, especially like as a professional like yourself, there's like so much assessment in the first place, right? Especially if someone's like 13, 14, 15, you know, going to adolescent development, that's like your test, you're putting your toe in the water of like, who am I in this world? And how am I different from my parents? on so many different yeah. scales, you know, including like aspects of your gender identity, right? And so like just those levels of transition starts with like a social transition, right? And it's like maybe a different name, maybe a different pronoun, seeing how that feels. And that's like, there's no harm or foul, you know, if someone's like, no, nah, you know, like that didn't feel, you know, it felt good for like these moments and you know, like the few people that you're working with where, you know, I, I thought I was going to go in this direction and I'm not, yep. that's fine. Right. And, you know, for other, for other young people, that's, this is, this is real. And it's the first time like, oh my gosh, my, my mom is using my name, my name and using my pronouns and just the, the shifts that I think parents can see immediately in, in their, their kiddos, like coming to life. Like I've, I've, I've seen this in, in my personal life with people and their kids where it's, they're a completely different person. They're like, they're expressive. They're, you know, more of themselves um, that it, it, it's very clear that kind of affirmation is great, you know? And then there's like legal transitions. So then you're legally changing your name and your documents and all that good stuff. And for, for medical transition, that's also very real. And it's not everyone's journey, right? Yeah. Not everyone will go that path, right? And for those of us that do, there's levels of it. And so if you're a very young person, one of the most beneficial things is pubertal suppression, which is actually used, I mean, some gymnasts actually use that for ways of like, you know, anyway, that's mm -hmm. that's a different thing, but it's very, yeah, it's 100% reversible. Right, it's been used right. medically for a variety of reasons historically. Absolutely, absolutely. So that was probably a bad example that I used on gymnasts, <laughs> but like, you know, it's been used for a variety of reasons beyond, you know, working with trans and non-binary young people. And it's 100% reversible, it's a pause. And, um, 
as, as someone who transitioned, you know, when I was 19, I had already gone through my first puberty, like had that been available for my parents, had they been supported by um, gender affirming therapists, you know, my, my, my childhood probably, my, I had a great childhood. So I'm not going to say that it was, it was challenging. Um, and it was challenging in respects of, you know, there was something that I felt so internally to who, to who I am and who I was at the time. And just getting messages from every, from my parents, from my faith community, from my, from my social, you know, communities in school and elsewhere, you know, it was just like, it was something I had to compartmentalize, you know, and, and fortunately, you know, later in life, I was able to unpack that and just to give young people that head start where you don't even have to do that kind of work as an adult is a gift. So I just, um, yeah. What, do, what you don't have to undo later. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, again, and I had probably the best case scenario of parents that were just trying to do the right thing. Um, and, you know, working with what they had, you know, they didn't have access to PFLAG. You know, I wasn't out. I wasn't out until I was 18, 19, you know, and, um, and then that was their own journey, but they were, they were supportive, right? And there's so many of my friends um, and people that I know more broadly where that experience isn't the same. And it leads to a lot of really negative outcomes that it takes, it takes a community of chosen family to really support people uh, who don't have parents like, like you all, parents listening to this podcast where you can really have a huge, enormous impact on your kids uh, if, you, if you really work with professionals that are connected to the research and can give you the information that sometimes it's hard to find. It's hard to find, especially if you're in states that are, yeah. you know, politicians promoting these really awful pieces of legislation that no child should ever, no child should be denied playing sports. You know, no child should be ostracized for some aspect of who they are. And that's what's happening right now. And I think those of us with a moral compass know, like, this is wrong. What do we do about it? And I think that's where people are struggling right now. Like, what do we do in this moment that feels really ugh, chilling? It feels very chilling. And so I just want to acknowledge that that's, that might be happening for, for some of your listeners, right? Yeah, no, and I, I really appreciate that and, and the, the, like and 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 allies too because a lot of you know i mean we parents navigating this journey with kids need uh, it's the judgment of other parents it's the judgment of people in the community we you know you need people to figure out how to get this writer or who to call how to get involved and and what's also interesting too roads i would say thank you for for being open and able to talk about this because part of the politicization also means that folks doing this work in the trenches and doing thoughtful, metered, age-appropriate, thorough, gender-affirming care are hesitant to put that out there sometimes, are not taking time to risk media misrepresentation, to, to risk um, judgment and misunderstanding from folks who have different beliefs I mean, again, I, I even saying have different beliefs, 
around the existence of this experience. Um, and so I think that's also a cost. When we look at what is a cost, if you're a parent trying to find information that is broad and available and um, written up or out there, that there, that there are oversimplified, misinformed, um, it's all decision trees. It's if this, then that. Well, if this child, then that. Okay, well, this is an option given your age, your child's temperament, what your child's asking for, how much distress they're in, where are you located, where are they safe, where are they not safe? And then each decision, each answer to those questions leads to four other four other options. And, and you can't encapsulate this stuff in a simple 300-word essay in terms of how it is done. And so a lot of the people doing the good work are, are in it every day. And, and, I, and so that's a cost, is that at times the sensationalized pieces become oversimplified, um, either versions of the really, and I'm thankful they're out there, but the versions of the really early disclosures who are so crystal clear between three and four and that's yeah. awesome. And it happens. And I'm so glad when those kids are supported and communities rally around those kids. And there are a whole lot more kids who, who don't have that binary clarity experience and still have a genuine gender identity uh, clarification need that we need to work with. So, so you know, even in a good faith attempt to describe what this process is like or to help communicate, knowing it's hard to encapsulate this stuff into sound bites. And so one of the costs of the politicization is the, the, the professional science-based um, arguments can feel quieter in mm -hmm. the foray of what's happening on a political level. So it would be, yeah, I mean, what... What do you what what do you encourage allies and parents to do right now? Where should they be looking? How do they find hope? What are the steps they can take tomorrow? <laughs> around yeah, that stuff? absolutely. I mean, I mean, if if people if people are ready to share their voices, you know, I mean, just just speaking your truth about what you're learning here on this podcast and elsewhere, um, and sharing that with your your immediate network. Um, I would say, you know, PFLAG National is a really fantastic organization with like 300 plus chapters across the country, including in Hawaii. Um, I mean, basically anywhere you are, you're not very far from a PFLAG chapter. And so if you're struggling, um, this is an organization for you. They've got people at the highest levels of their board and on their staff that are either trans, non-binary, um, or their parents of someone who's trans and non-binary, uh, those resources are super valuable. Um, and, you know, if it's available to you to kind of write, you know, write an op-ed or call your legislator and share your story, if that's available to you. I know not everybody's in that place. Um, so PFLAG's really great because they provide support. If you're just, if you're scared, you're nervous, you need other parents who've been there before, that would be my number one recommendation. Also, if you're looking for education, that's a fabulous organization. And if you're ready to advocate, um, that's also a great place to do it. That, that would be maybe my first, first suggestion. There's also the gender spectrum conference that I think is happening in July this year. And they, they offer some really powerful, family programming so you can connect with other parents that have been there before lots of parents of different ages right um as well as 
you know, there's, there's professionals like, like Dr. Laura there. Uh, there's, um, also young, young kids. So there's like a space for other trans and non-binary kids as young as like two and three, you know, in these spaces to be like, ah, you know, there's other, there's other young people just like me. That's super powerful. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot at the ready that you can do. Um, and I would say, take a look at those statements that the American Medical Association has put out, the, the Endocrine Society. I mean, the quiet statements that, that speak volumes, because these, these, are, these are professionals with licenses that have put their professional credentials out there to say, this is what we know from peer-reviewed research, from working with hundreds and hundreds of trans and non-binary young people, the WPATH standards of care. This is how we care for someone going through a social, legal, medical transition. All of this stuff is out there. Unfortunately, there's a lot of platforms that are very loud, um, bombastic, and sharing a lot of really awful misinformation. Um, you know, I, I come from DC. I love politics and it's just, it's very ugly right now. When Whenever trans and non-binary people are brought up in conversations with hosts and guests that know nothing of what they're talking about other than repeating misinformation that they've heard. And I, I hear it all the time. <clears throat> I've, I've stopped <laughs> writing to the producers of these shows because I often don't get a response when just sharing information, especially you know, for me coming from a child welfare background, when places like states of Texas want to talk about what safety and abuse and risk look like, what safety, abuse, and risk look like with a trans or non-binary young person is denying that young person the right to self-autonomy to say who they are. That to me is abuse. And parents and caretakers that get in the way of that are, are really denying a young person from their ability to lead a healthy and happy adult life. Um, and so... Yeah, that's what, no. a lot of a lot of stuff that I would share on that. Yeah, no, definitely. And I want to I want to we're going to circle back to that at the, in the last moment. First, I have a, a one question for you that comes up a lot is that one of the other costs of the politicization is is safety in some cases. Right. So as we mentioned, um, there are parents with genuine concerns about, no, really, if my kid goes out of the house like this, they could be seriously physically harmed in our neighborhood, or I'm afraid that they're going to be identified as gender expansive, people can tell, et cetera, et cetera. I work a lot with parents to understand that the first protective instinct is to you know, stop all of that and never let any of it happen. Um, and yet, the more nuanced conversation is, where where is it totally safe and affirming for you to do that? If it isn't safe and affirming for you to do that realistically, how do you know? What I talk with parents about developing antenna. We need you need your child to develop an antenna, your young person, to to recognize that there are people who are unwilling to who are unable, who have not been exposed to the correct information or who are unwilling to hear it. So how are you gonna start developing the skills? to figure out, you know, trust your gut, develop the skills to figure out when you're safe or not. Do you have a safety plan? Will you head right into a restaurant? Will you always move in groups? Will you have, you know, this number on speed dial? Will you, like, what are the things that you are going to do? So rather than coming from the standpoint of these cues around gender must be stopped, 
is a real conversation because you know your neighborhoods, you know your school systems, you know, we're not, no, none of us, I'm sure Rhodes would want to set any child up to be harmed um, yes. by other people's bigotry. Um, mm. And there are real conversations to be had about where can you, how do you know, what can we support you in doing, please know. Because too often that conversations or the, or the conversations around changing behavior are also in the context of this tussle about if it's real. Right. It's like it's all happening at once. This isn't real. And you're in danger kind of a thing rather than saying like, hey, we see you. We're walking with you on this. Reality is the world still has people who aren't with us on this. They don't share our family values. And because of that, let's think through together what spaces right now are places that you can truly be yourself. And how can we think about those other ones? Does that resonate with the kind of conversations you're having with folks? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I really like what you're talking about with that antenna uh, yeah. of kind of safety first, and um, and I think you know as as we as we age, you know, as trans and non-binary people age, like immediately, like knowing like we 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 know where we feel safest and where we don't. And I think for parents, right, with very young young children, you know, like teaching those skills is really key. Right, and that that protective factor is key. And um, I sharing an example of a PFLAG parent that I used to work at PFLAG as as their policy director about a decade ago, and I worked with this this mom who was incredible. So she and her husband um, were at that time raising a couple of kids, and one of their kids um, uh, is a is a trans girl. And at the time, she was five and going to a Catholic school. Um, and they they were very scared, very confused. Um, they got connected to PFLAG and some some local professionals based in Nebraska, and um, really supported her with with what she needed. And they were working with the school and letting them know, hey, you know, our daughter, you know, is using this name and these pronouns. And um, the school actually kicked her out. So um, so that was kind of. It's an example of yep. like immediately that was kind of maybe a bullet dodged of like, okay, we didn't have to try to transform the school. Um, but what that was a lesson for is that they were able to kind of look at other schools nearby in their district just to kind of have conversations with a supportive administration to build that safety for their kid, right? So it's it's the work is on on you, the parent, right? Which yeah. probably feels like, oh my gosh, on top of me trying to figure out like, getting information about the realness of my kid, yeah. keeping them safe. Now I have to be an educator, right? So it's a it's a progression, right? And I think first it's educating yourself and recognizing this is real, you know, and what are the consequences of sticking your head in the sand about it yeah. for your kid? Because at the end of the day, you love your kid. So how are you going to get there? And how are you going to work through your, your own stuff? And, you know, this might be another example. Maybe it's helpful, maybe it's not. Um, you know, for, for my family, my family is very concerned, you know, I grew up Catholic, um, very concerned about what everybody else thinks about them, right? So what are the neighbors going to think? What's the, you know, they'll never say that to me, right? But like, I know them. So they had to work through their own stuff, you know, and it took my dad, you know, I mean, it was probably a good decade. So I was probably 29 by that point for him. We were out at a restaurant 
and he was still using the wrong pronoun for me. And if you saw me, you know, I have a beard and, you know, I'm like any other guy that you would probably see. He's using, he's using she and her pronouns with me, which is deeply painful. I don't recommend misgendering people. That's awful. Um, and he's my dad, so I'm trying to coach him along. And I just said, you know, the waiter kind of looked at him when he mispronounced me. And I was like, the waiter walked away and I said, dad, you look like you're losing it. You know, like you just like, and then that was the moment for him where he's like, oh my gosh, what are they going to think of me? So just don't be, don't be my dad, (laughs) Um, like try to get there quicker. And I think working with, working with professionals like Dr. Laura, right. Where it's like, you got to work through your own stuff so that when you're with your kid, you can be there for them. Right. And those are two separate things. Um, And sometimes, you know, I just, I see it enough in my own world where it's like, uh, you, you haven't done your own work, you know, and it's coming out on the people that you love in ways that you wouldn't want it to. And I just, I'm wondering if that resonates for you. Dr. Yeah, Larry. totally. In, in fact, and, and we know where you got, we know where the work comes from. I mean, that's the other thing is that we can really do like, this is the water we swim. It's everywhere. We're programmed from early for a variety of different sort of, like we know why parts of this are hard. We know why there are fear. We know why for some folks, there's expectations and dreams they had that feel like a loss. We know that there are expectations that what they're losing is an expectation or a plan or a dream. It's, it's not a being in their child. Their child is their child. Um, yeah. and, and so we understand though, right? It's like being able to say yes, but if you don't, if you make fear-based decisions, you will either say no to too much or yes to too much in, in ways that aren't helpful for anybody either. Um, yeah. in terms of, um, yeah, turning away from things, stalling, delay. This is the way anxiety shows up, right? Stalling, delaying, mm-hmm. Um, minimizing, joking, uh, drawing parallels. Well, I wanted to be an NBA player, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of a thing. And that was never going to happen, you know? And I'm like, oh no, these are core identity. And again, this is a nice way to kind of wrap. We all came to know and understand our gender identity. We all came to know our sexual orientation through different cues who we noticed in the world around us. I wouldn't change into my jammies in front of the Osmond show because I thought Donnie might see me in my <laughs> And that worried me, right? And I'm like, we there were indications that were beyond me being able to make sense of it. Our, our beings and our bodies respond and react to different people in terms of attraction. Um, and we have ways of knowing what feels right about our gender similarly, both how we relate to our bodies, but also what the outside world, how they're gendering us and whether that lands right with us or not. Um, And we all are having those processes. And if you're, you know, if you happen to line up in your head and your hearts and your parts, you don't notice the numbers of times these things happen. But if you are one of the increasing numbers of folks who are letting us know that that this is um, a, an experience for them. And when I talk about the increasing numbers, I'm not calling it a fat, I'm not doing that. But I'm saying realistically, I like those statistics because they normalize it. Like, how do we normalize? We all have this experience. There are more and more of us articulating that the limited boxes don't work. And there are great consequences for keeping kids, forcing kids into situations that don't work. Um, mm. 
So normalizing this experience, believing young kids, getting thoughtful assessments and thoughtful help to explore, you know, what is, you know, deeply felt and head and heart, what is identity struggle, all of those pieces. One, one last thing I could talk for hours. I'm like, already, like, we got to have you back on and chat. One of the things parents, when we, when we're worried about our kids, right? Like, and, and we're in it. And it's like right now, like seventh grade, you can't do this in seven. There will be such consequences in middle school or high school or whatever. Yes. To remind my listeners about the marathon of parenting. When I, I want parents to imagine their 29 year old in a restaurant. Most of the parents I know want to stay connected to their kids. And they want a long term, like the decisions we make when they're 14 do have implications on how connected we are. I also want parents to have a belief because in this phase where they're desperately searching for information and they're seeing a lot of media that's confusing because they don't know which source is which and who's they start off in a certain direction and then they're confused. And this may sound like an overly simplistic question, but can you talk about your life as a trans person and as a trans adult? Have you been happy and healthy? And do, I mean, do you have loving community? Like so many times parents come in of like not able to see this future that feels okay. And I don't know if that's too personal to ask, but like, are you willing to talk a little bit about that, about reassurance to offer parents? Absolutely. I, I think one of the greatest gifts for me is, is being a transgender person. Um, I, you know, and, and as my life as an adult, um, I have had so many incredible opportunities just trying to, to share a little bit about my experiences with people who don't have that proximity. And like with anything, like if you can think about something that's really precious to you that might feel vulnerable to share with another person, when you trust that person enough and you share that piece that's so central to who you are, it's like almost immediately, at least from my experience, I find that that person I'm sharing with takes a move towards me and shares something really central about them. And that kind of connection is so powerful. So like, I would just say that that has really allowed me to tell really quickly, like who who amongst the many people that I get to meet in the world are people that I can trust and really build long-term relationships with. And, and it makes it really quick to tell me who those people aren't, you know, that I don't have to waste time. Right. And so, um, you know, I mean, I've had the opportunity to work at the white house. I've worked at advocacy groups. I, I now run my own business. You know, I'm able to do work that feels, in alignment with my values and who I am. I'm writing books, you know, I mean, I have a podcast and I get to connect with so many other trans, non-binary, gender expansive, two-spirit people um, who are able to just share, you know, a different perspective of being human that really does, when people are open to it, it also gives them an added sense of liberation to really self-actualize who they are, right? It gives them permission of like, wow, like this is, you, you took this path and that's really inspiring. It's giving me some added motivation to think about 
what what am I not articulating that's really key to who I am that could be risky to share? So so that's one element. And then I think the other element as parents, right? Um, one of the things that my parents often share with me is the value now today. You know, they've, they've had a couple of decades to process their stuff, right? But they really, you know, they really value having a transgender son, right? Because it's allowed them to grow in ways that they never imagined, right? It allowed them to kind of also, you know, in particular for my dad, who was someone that I would say as a child would kind of go along to get along. Um, seeing my dad find his voice today, he lives in the state of Florida, and right now there's a lot of legislation that's happening there. He's writing letters to the editor. He's he's traveling to lobby days with Equality Florida to say to share aspects of his own story that's changing the narrative for people just repeating misinformation. And he's starting with his own friends, right? So he's he's a white, cisgender, straight man who's who's got a lot of privilege in the world, right? And he's using that in a way that's changing slowly other people's ideas because he's just challenging people. Well, why are you saying that about someone who's trans? You know, I remember he told me a story, you know, working out in the gym where he just did that with with someone who was running his mouth and not knowing what he was saying. And my dad was like, you know, you should be really careful about sharing that information. You don't know who you're talking to. My son is trans. And the, the person who said it froze in his tracks. And he, he actually, they, they're now friends, right? But in kind of an un, un, unlikely way. So just kind of think like, you know, if you are kind of in this protective fear mindset, which is totally totally normal because you're good parents and you want the best for your kids. See this as a gift. It might not feel like a gift right now. And if you give it time, it does become one of your superpowers, I would say. I love that. And this is what I say too. And it's a great place to, I wish we could keep talking, but to wrap up (laughs) is this idea that if you do the work, Mm -hmm. There, there is the superpower. There is the gift. If you're shying away from the work, if you're um, not staying engaged in learning and connected to your kid, then you're more likely to hang out in the place of fears and guilts and grief. And, and you and your child don't learn to do hard things that lead to wonderful places and wonderful communities and wonderful people and uh, conversations. So I hope that my listeners will check you out on your, what's the name of your podcast and what's your latest book so they can find you those ways. Oh, my latest book is Imagine Belonging. Um, if you want to learn a little bit about my story as a trans guy working at the White House, Belonging at Work is another good book. And you can find all that good stuff at roadsperry.com. So thanks for thanks for asking me. Yeah, awesome. And I'm, I love I love building community and I love directing parents and then clinicians. For those clinicians listening, if you're working with parents in your office, get them toward um, Rhodes stuff and stay, stay, look for the quiet, reasonable, sensible um, information from the trained professionals and advocate if you're in places where, where this has become political. Get your friends who are allies to advocate. That's incredibly powerful. Um, and one step, one day, one conversation, one phone call at a time, we hope to build more safety and security for kids who so badly need it. So thank you, Rhodes, for being part of today's conversation and part of 
of building a better, better world uh, for all of us. So thank you. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. Just a quick note here at the end to say I am so glad you joined and I hope you are too. And if you'd like to connect with me more, come take a look at my website, www.drlauraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter, keep in touch and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation uh, on Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today.